is. <laughs> but the episode's going to be titled Hopeful, Not Helpless. I, I forgot what number it is. I'm just waiting for Riley. I think it's episode 56 of the Strength and Success Show. She can correct me in a second when she hops on here. I just blanked when it went live on me. But this is uh, the Strength and Success Show. You guys are able to answer questions or ask questions, I should say, on the podcast live. Of course, the podcast gets released every single Monday. You can download it then if you want to see the whole thing here or hop on here in a second. Oh, we have a special guest. The artist formerly known as Presnell and Sophie, the dog. Sophie is here. She's our co-co-host for today. (laughs) She's going to answer all the tough questions, I'm sure. All the tough questions, yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so this is the Strength and Success Show. Of course, we record live every single week, and we have questions that are sent to us in our stories. Riley usually posts her story Q&A on Tuesdays. I generally post mine on Wednesdays, although I had a travel fiasco yesterday, so there wasn't one. You guys are also welcome to ask questions here on the live. We do have some startup questions still that we need to go over and ask. So we'll get started here. Of course, the topic this week is hopeful, not helpless. But first, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. This is also episode 57, by the way. Seven. See, I, was, I knew I was going to get that around. <laughs> okay. so I- just uh, took her for a walk, uh, had a nice pump session today, um, enjoying the nice sunshine weather. It's not a bad day. It is not sunshiny up here. I just did my first walk of the day, and there's like rain clouds just looking over there looming at us. And I was like, oh, man, I don't want to go to LA Fitness and walk today. <laughs> LA Fitness sucks. It's so bad. I mean, it's literally like two minutes from my home, unfortunately, but I, I hate going there to walk. I prefer to walk outside. Uh, just the vibe in there is so bad. Yeah, it's a, I mean, commercial gym, standard standard gym bro, you know, no squats to depth, no pause benches. Uh, everyone's a cardio bunny too, so it's real cool. <laughs> All right, so topic today, hopeful, not helpless. I kind of follow this one because I was reading about this really interesting study, and don't judge me for this study. It was done in the 1960s. And this is where the term learned helplessness came from. And in the study, they had a group of dogs. They were separated into three categories. The dogs were trapped in a room with a door that had a latch on it. And there was a group one that had the ability to open the latch and the door would open and they can get out. Group two had shock collars on. And when they hit the latch, they would get a shock, but the door would open and they would get out. And group would get the shock when they hit the latch, but the door would never open. So they were learning that every time they hit the door, the door wouldn't open and they would get this shock. This is the 60s. It's a wild time. Don't judge me for this study. But this is actually where the term learned helplessness came from. After a certain amount of time when the dogs learned this behavior and habit, they switched all the groups around. And it was really interesting because the groups that would just open the door would keep going, trying to open the door, regardless of the outcome. And the group that got shocked the first time and the door never opened, never even tried. All they remembered is that every time they touched the latch on the door, they got a painful shock and they never went over there and they never tried to open the door. And the, the uh, psychologist who oversaw the study termed this learned helplessness. So even though that shock was taken away from them, they were so ingrained to getting that painful sensation, that painful shock, they stopped trying to open the door. They were helpless, or so they thought, but they weren't actually helpless. And I thought, wow, that really applies to strength sports and powerlifting, because so many people say the diet didn't work for me, the program didn't work for me, or do these things. And we learn a helpless behavior, and we think it's not possible to do things instead of being hopeful. And that's because we don't follow through, and we generally start to picture that as failure, so we stop trying. It's not that we're not capable, it's that we stop trying and we learn to become helpless 
when in reality, there's so much potential that's out there. If we change our habits, change our behavior and do the hard work, put in more effort, we should be more hopeful because almost no one has really reached their potential or genetic ceiling because that limit doesn't exist unless we impose it upon ourselves. That's why I wanted to talk about that. Success is not sudden. It's very slow, it's very gradual, but it takes consistent effort and trying. And that's where you need to always remember to be hopeful, not helpless. Because just because you don't succeed success today doesn't mean it's not coming down the road and tomorrow if you keep up those habits. There are so many times where you do the same thing day in and day out, day in and day out, like, oh, I didn't see any progress. It's like, you weren't testing yet, you were still building. And that's why you have to have that hope because we're training for the long run. The competition might be eight weeks away, 18 weeks away, or even a year away if you're someone who competes only once a year. You have to continue to be hopeful every training session and see this as a step towards progress. Anything you want to add to that? Of course. Uh, <laughs> I just want to say that I have a red, white, and a blue. I have the white, gray. Um, of course, I have something to add to this. This is a, I feel like I like to talk about this stuff a lot, and it kind of goes along with episodes in the past that we've done where mm -hmm. it's been um, like looking for, when people look for problems, not solutions, like when you are helpless, you're probably only fixating on the problem and what you can't do, and what you're not able to do or what you're not willing to do, rather than focusing on what you can do, what you want to do or what you're capable of doing. Um, you know, so many times people do like the, the woe is me thing where they have, you know, a minor injury and they're like, huh. I won't be able to, won't be able to hit the prescribed weight today. Wow, woe is me. I don't even think I want to go in. And it's like, okay, you could have that mindset of like, you're not going to be able to hit the prescribed weight today because of X, Y, Z reason. Or, and you just decide to like not go in because you're like, I'm not going to hit what I'm supposed to be hitting. Um, instead of doing that, like you could be like, okay, well, I'm just going to scale back today and still get the work in, find a win for the day. And that is being hopeful because that's how we kind of progress, right? Um, I've seen you multiple times like strip down a bar or take the weight down or I've taken the weight down when things aren't going perfectly, whether that's due to life stress or travel or under eating or whatever it is, like whatever reason it is that I'm underperforming, I will still get something done regardless of the scenario because I'd rather get something than nothing done. Like that's your, instead of, instead of staying in the same place and like kind of you know, working your way, digging yourself out of that hole. Instead of doing that, if you do nothing and you don't try to progress, you don't try to make any sort of progress, um, you're taking two steps back, right? So if you are someone who has a bad day and you just decide not to go into the gym because you had a bad day, um, you are helpless. And that's, it's a really hard mindset to get out of. Like we talk about PMA, um, positive mental attitude. And we talk about like having a negative mindset and how you get you can get so stuck in this like negative cycle and perpetuate your negative thoughts if you're not consistently trying to pull yourself out of that. So if instead of trying to find a solution every single time, you're fixating on the problem, what you can't do, um, that is going to keep you uh, helpless. So generally when a client will come to me and they're like, I can't do this, I'm like, well, what can you do? That's the first question that I generally ask is what can we do? Um, because why focus on what you can't do? You already know that's finite that you can't do that thing. So why focus? Why have your mind so trained to focus on that? And when you could instead focus on what you can do, and that's how we get out of that negative thought process. That's how we start promoting that PMA. That's how we start taking small baby steps forward if you're injured or if you have like a major life setback or whatever it is. Um, but I 
hate, like, I, I hate it. I hate that thought process with clients. And the first thing that they, the first thing that comes out of their mouth is can't, I can't do this. It's like, okay, you can't, sure, but there's always a way. Like, you can always find a way. There's always a modification. There's always some way to scale back. It's just, it's a pet peeve of mine because I think it's because I don't think that way. Um, you know, if I have an obstacle, I try to find a solution. Like, if I'm at a different gym and you program me something that I can't do, instead of being like, there's no belt squat here, so I'm not going to do belt squats, I find something that I can uh, switch to that is similar to a belt squat. And you know? it, I mean, it happens. Uh, you, you just mentioned the verbiage when they're like, I can't do this, I can't do that. And sometimes we talk about listening to the clients, listening to the athletes' verbiage they use. And there are some clients that will message you and be like, I'm having difficulty doing or I'm having pain experiencing what I'm doing. They're using a very different verbiage and I can't do this. And you're 100% right on that because they're accepting that finite answer. And, and my response is the same as yours always. What can we do without pain? What can we do without comfort? What can we do instead? And let's start building it up. Case in point Monday, you were talking about this earlier. Uh, I traveled and I just could, Sunday, sorry. I just could not squat. I started with the, the duffalo bar. I was supposed to do high bar squats. And it was just murdering me in the upper back. I just couldn't control it. So I brought it to a straight bar and tried again and just couldn't do it. And I'm like, okay, what am I supposed to get? And it was a certain amount of volume. And I went over to leg press and I did all my volume in the leg press. My upper back was just so wound up and tight from flying and traveling and being inflamed from whatever reason. It was like, what can I do? And that is what I did. I tried the first time, it didn't work. I tried again, something else. But I never walked away and said, F this, I'm not doing it. I said, what can I do? So it wasn't the most ideal scenario compared to what I was supposed to do, but it was something. And a little something is always better than a lot of nothing. Yeah, it's just, you can, you can kind of filter out the clients who are a little bit more mentally weak than not by exactly how you said, how they approach the situation. Mm -hmm. um, it is it is a huge difference to say I can't and like, oh, I'm having trouble. What what can we do instead? Like, I love when a client will come to me and say, what can I do instead of this? I am unable to complete said exercise because X, Y, Z. What can I do instead? Because um, I'll get those messages. But then at the same flip of the coin, I'll get the message that's like, well, I couldn't do this. So I skipped it. It was in there. If, if you're getting a program written for intent, like intently for you and it's not a group program, it's an individualized program. There is a reason or there should be a reason why every exercise is written in there. So skipping things is not how you get better. Uh, it's in there for to work on a specific area of opportunity. So yeah, if a client is like, I'm unable to do this, what can I do instead? Especially if they ask ahead of time, that's a good client. That's someone who is, um, you know, concerned about their goals and concerned about progressing versus, you know, if you get the message later that day or the next day where it's like, well, I couldn't do this last night. So I just skipped it and I didn't add anything in to replace it. I just, I moved on. All right, cool. That's the same client who in like three to four months is going to be like, why am I not seeing any progress? Because yeah. you're not, you're not setting yourself up to see progress. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's important. We talk about this all the time, that, that mental aspect. That's the whole point of the show, success and, and strength show. Strength and success. So is, is your strength comes from your mind first. You know, you have to speak to yourself a certain way. You have, to, you have to choose to do certain things. You have to be willing, and we always, it's cliche, but you have to be willing to be uncomfortable. And like Riley said, like if she couldn't belt squat, what can she do? It may not be the most comfortable thing. It's like, what's the intent of the belt squat? It's, it's quad work. What's mechanically similar? What can I replace in it? Um, if I can't do the same load, maybe I get out of band or whatever it is. You know, it's like find a way to make something happen because it's not going to happen for you. And that's that hopefulness, not that helpfulness. Is you have to be hopeful enough to find a way to make something happen. Uh, you're not getting a shock. You're not getting a horrible shock collar. You just might have a little bit of disappointment at the time, but that disappointment shouldn't 
um, dissuade you from your goals or your passion. It should only encourage you more because that, that obstacle is always the way. You know, whatever that obstacle is in front of you, that's what you have to work on most to get stronger and get better at it. So seek out that obstacle, find those things that are frustrating you because that's how you're going to progress. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Let's get to some questions. What's our first question? Okay, we'll start with a fun one. All right. Fuck, Mary kill, squat, venture, deadlift. <laughs> I, answered, I answered this in my story. Um, uh, I, I'm trying to remember the order in which I did this in, but I think I said, uh, um, Mary bench because bench makes me miserable. Like, uh, because bench makes me miserable and everyone's marriage ends up in misery. So I'll definitely marry bench. <laughs> I said, I would fuck that list because have you seen mine? It's pretty sexy. Um, it's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. Very attracted to it. It is my favorite. I don't care what type of delt it is, whether it's conventional trap bars, zircher, I don't give a fuck. I love deadlifts. Picking shit up just makes me happy. And I would kill squats because that bitch took my adductor. I think it was my exact response. <laughs> so I lost half my left leg on squats. So kill that bitch. <laughs> I think that's fair. Um, I would say, fuck, okay. Mary, I would deadlift. Consistent. Uh, it's always my best lift. Um, I have been in a very long committed relationship with enjoying deadlifts, so I would marry deadlifts. Um, fuck bench, because when it's good, it's good, so that's fine. Um, I would kill squats because I've been in like, I, I think for, if I, when I look back at my like old archive stories or old archive posts on Instagram, it'll be like three years ago and I'm like, well, I squatted today and it wasn't great squats and I don't have a good relationship. And I'm like, damn, three years ago and I still don't have a good relationship with squats. When is this going to change? So, um, you know, I'm working on it consistently. My squat has gotten a lot better. Uh, there's always some like small little nuance to work on, but I think I would definitely uh, fuck bench, marry deadlift and kill squat. Yeah, that's a good order. Um, you know, you, you bring up bench and it kind of talks about what we talked about at the beginning about, you know, looking for what you can do in those mega gains and building small wins along the way to find hope. Riley actually struggled for about two years with bench, about not seeing a bench PR for two years when she went from weighing like 183, 184 down to about 153 pounds. Bench took a massive hit with a body weight change. And it just reminded me when you said that of the, of the garage, you know, you hadn't hit a PR in two years and it was at 230 was the weight and your PR at the time was 231. And you're like, should I go 230? Should I go 235? And I'm like, we're in the garage. We had the chips from the, um, uh, the kilo set. Let's just go 232 or 233, like secure the PR. And she smoked it, which was great. I don't know if she would have gotten to 235. She might have. But the, the idea was that small win renewed hope in the bench. So that's why bench moved up the list. Because if you asked her that question a few months ago, she probably would have wanted to kill bench. <laughs> or fuck bench, sorry. Because <laughs> that was her most frustrating list then. Now it's squats again, but it's you just look like you can learn helplessness. You can learn hopefulness by those small micro gains and those micro wins, which we had the chip plate. So the 233 was a two pound PR, but it renewed enthusiasm in bench again. And then today her, her bench uh, set like projected something ridiculous, like 20 pounds above, which is pretty good. Yeah, uh, I was, yeah, I projected 253 today. Also the puppy was already in the intro and she got tired of sitting on my lap. So now she's on the floor enjoying a treat, but, um, <laughs> Yeah, no, it took me two years to hit a two-pound bench PR, so now uh, hopefully it goes faster for the next one. But, yeah, I don't know. I uh, I feel like it's all cyclical. Like, I'm sure in a couple of months I'll enjoy squats again and I'll I'll stop being so shifty. Trevor recorded a video today for me that's uh, addressing the massive nasty hip shift that I have. 
uh, in my squat right now. So I'm sure in a couple months when that shift is gone, I'll probably be like, wow, squats are great again. And then I'll probably hate bench or something stupid. But I feel like it's all cyclical. Yeah. All right. Cool. What's our next question? Um, what are some things that have made your life easier as a coach? Ah, this was actually a good question. And I neglected to say I wanted to answer that, even though I didn't answer it in my source, because it was much more detailed. Uh, things that have made my life easier as a coach is really learning and understanding implementing systems. We talk about that casually, but that's really, really important because if this is your actual job, you need to treat it like a job. You have to have office hours, basically, or time that you work and understand what your most important systems are to schedule them because it can get overwhelming. And if people don't follow those systems, it's very hard to help them because you're going to have to go out of your way to help them and it throws off all of your bounds. So the first thing is dictate what your work hours are, what you want them to be. Uh, that's a boundary you have to have. Like, for instance, my phone goes off at 10 p.m. I'm not answering you. I don't care what coach you're on, what country and or what question you sent me. There's no such thing as a Carlton emergency. If you're hurt, you dial 911. That's how that works. Like 10 p.m., I'm done with, with answering people and stuff like that. And Instagram. Instagram has worked for me. I don't go on there to scroll and casually have fun. I'm not scrolling unless my work is done. So for me, my office hours on Instagram are basically 2 p.m. to 10 p.m., and I'm not on there of those eight straight hours because I do work in the morning too, but that's when I'm only going to be reachable for the most part on Instagram because I won't go on there in the morning. My computer, my laptop that I work from does not have any social media on there so I can do work without getting interrupted. I can answer emails or, or write programs and so forth without interruption and be able to focus on it. And then that's the other avenue is anything that affects a client's programming or changing programming has to be emailed because I receive hundreds of DMs every day and those will get lost. I won't be able to go back and forth and reference a text message or a DM. So even though your videos might go to Instagram for review or get some form of critique, your things that will change your program or dictating must be emailed to me because I can reference email from my computer and then put it into your program and make the updates and change that. And clients forget that sometimes like, hey, I DM'd you, but you didn't make the change. I'm like, exactly, because in the guidelines I send you, it says you have to email me because I get two or 300 DMs a day. And trust me, I'm not going to remember. It takes me an hour and a half to clear my DMs when I get back in the gym from that 2 p.m. time to get through and answer everybody. There's no way I can remember everything. If you're DMing on Tuesday and I write your program on Friday, it's going to be forgotten unless it's in my email. Because when I go to write your program, I type in your name and everything you sent me is right there all in the line. So the, the biggest thing that makes your life easier is understanding how to systemize yourself because you do work for yourself if you do this and have that process. So I get up in the morning, I eat, I spend the first 10 to 15 minutes myself doing mobility, listening to something educational, and then I will sit down and start answering people and running programs, answering people as far as emails and running programs and so forth. And then I'll train. I make sure that I train uninterrupted. So my personal time, my personal training time around 11 a.m. is in a good positive place, a good thought process. I'm not thinking about your problems when I'm training. I'm thinking about what I need to do because I prioritize that time for myself. After that time is over and I get on Instagram and all those things, then I'm starting to prioritize your issues, your problems, your needs. So the biggest thing that's really going to help you if you're coaching and you're coaching full time, if you're fortunate enough to do that, is systems. Create your systems, follow your systems, make the athlete fit into your systems because if they don't, it's not the appropriate fit for you. Uh, I would agree with the, like, the boundaries and the systems thing. Um, I have, bound, I have some, some of the similar boundaries. Like I generally don't, um, I don't answer client messages before like 8.30 or so. Uh, Lately, I've been up around 7 because puppy. So I try to not answer any client videos before 8.30. So that way I give myself the morning to, like, wake up, exist, have a cup of coffee, take my dog out. Um, you know, just, like, enjoy the morning, basically, before I start answering questions. Um, between 8.30 and 11, I'll answer, like, whatever videos that I have in there at the time or, like, check social media. And then around, like, 10, between 10.30 and 11 is when I start to train. So 
once again, I also like to have uninterrupted time on training as well. Um, it can be that can be hard to like shut that aspect off because like your phone is there and like you're recording videos and you see things drop down and whatnot. So, but I try to keep my training time uninterrupted as well. Um, and then after 9.30 p.m., I don't answer messages unless there's like extenuating circumstances where I've been busy. Like I know sometimes when um, like tattoo appointments, I'll be there until like 10 p.m. and then I leave. I'll check some messages for like a half an hour once I'm done. Um, so that way I'm not so overwhelmed in the morning when I wake up. But like having those boundaries of being like, okay, these are my dedicated times. These are when I'm okay to answer these questions or these are okay when I, this is when I'm available to answer videos. And also it's when I'm able to give like my most attention to videos. Like when I'm trying to spend time with people that I care about, I try not to look at my phone because I want to be present in that moment. Like I think it's very important to be present in whatever moment that you're in. Um, and also like if I am spending time with people and I'm trying to watch client videos and spend time with them, I'm not focusing on one or the other, you know? So like I may not be paying as much attention to the client video because I'm trying to also pay attention to the people that I'm with. So whenever I'm looking at client videos, I want it to be during a time uh, when I can give hundred percent attention there. Um, structure is super, super nice in that same kind of aspect of like the boundaries of not answering questions, not answering client videos or questions before or after a certain time. Um, also for me specifically, Google drive has made my life so easy because between like traveling and whatnot, um, I can, if I have the Google drive app on my phone, I can access any program that I want from anywhere from my phone rather than having to have my laptop on me at all times. So having the Google drive app to where I can go in and if a client's like, Hey, I need this adjusted or, you know, last minute changes or whatever. If I am not near my laptop, I have the Google app so I can just go on there and make whatever changes I need to. And then it automatically gets populated to them. So that's been like a more uh, technology app thing that has made my life really simple, but overall structure boundaries makes my life simple as a coach, because then I'm not frustrated all the time. Like I'm not, when I get frustrated with coaching or if I get frustrated with, um, like me not respecting my own boundaries that reflects on my work as well. So trying to respect myself as much as possible helps me work better or do better by the client. That's a good question, a detailed question. There's one that popped up here from uh, PewDiePie1888. Do you think powerlifting alone is going to work in building muscle mass or do I have to follow a power build program? It's generic to just call it powerlifting program as far as building muscle mass. The majority of powerlifting programs that aren't hyper-specific, such as linear or conjugate of some kind, are going to have a lot of accessory work that is geared towards building muscle or creating hypertrophy stimulus. That being said, that's a stimulus and a process that takes a long time. You're not going to build an appreciative amount of muscle in six weeks or 10 weeks. It shows scientifically it takes about eight weeks just to notice any appreciable amount of increase in muscle mass. That's minute. So really muscle mass is something that takes time, years to build. You're not going to build in a very short term time. So I hate these and it's sales and marketing tactics, 12 week muscle building programs. You're not building a significant amount of muscle mass in 12 weeks. You can gain a significant amount of weight if you eat an abundance of calories, but it doesn't mean you're accruing a significant amount of fat-free muscle mass. It just means you've gained a lot of weight, which could be water, bloat, fat mass, whatever. So you have to stop thinking those terms. Now, there are certain powerlifting programming programs like a daily undulating periodization that doesn't typically have a lot of hypertrophy-based work. It's hyper-specific to the comp lifts. You're less likely to improve muscle mass significantly without a significant amount of volume. And some of those programs have only volume with the main lift and low reps three to four or five rep ranges, which are more strength-based than the other programs, which may have hypertrophy work, which is like an eight to 12 rep range or strength work, which is three to six. You can increase muscle mass significantly 
from a range of one to 30 reps and even 50 reps to a degree as far as sarcoplasmic uh, hypertrophy, not, uh, not the actual protein building of the actin myosin. But that doesn't mean that you can just say a power build program is going to give you better results than a powerlifting program. It's what's in that program. Is there a stimulus for hypertrophy in the program? Are you eating? Are you sleeping? Are you recovered to do it? Are you consistently doing it for six months to a year? Then you're going to see an increase in size and strength. If the program doesn't have a specific stimulus for increasing in size, it's less likely you'll see that. Power building is just a generic marketing term to make you think you're focusing more on muscle mass and size than you are on strength. But most power building programs look exactly like the program for all and I put out for, for power thing specific work anyways, because the hypertrophy work we put in is usually in your accessory list. We always break it down into what are your lift builders, what are your, what are your muscle builders, and that's how we put it in there. So you can like, technically call my programming, Ron's program, power building. That's just marketing. That's not a reality. The reality is, do you have a stimulus for hypertrophy? Are you eating in a caloric surplus to create hypertrophy? And are you doing it for a really long freaking time? That determines whether or not you see the size, not so much the type of program. Sorry, went on a rant. <laughs> Uh, to dive like a little bit deeper into that too, like what is your what is your overall goal, right? Um, with this specifically, like if you only care about muscle building, then like you could run a you could could realistically you could run like a concurrent style programming because within concurrent like or conjugate whatever you want to call it, with that you're non-specific to the movements, right? Like the uh, with concurrent or conjugate training, it generally cycles to new movements every single week and then there's a fuck ton of accessory work after that for like building muscle so if you don't necessarily care about like specific skill building or you're not trying to train for a meet or whatever and you just want to build muscle and you want you like powerlifting, um you could run a concurrent or conjugate style programming versus if you are someone who like wants the skill improvement of like the squat bench and deadlift and you enjoy squatting benching and deadlifting but you also want to build muscle then you follow something like a linear program or uh like what basically what we write so i think it like it really kind of depends on what your overall goal is here like you you have to eat in a surplus in order to gain size or whatever but if you are more focused on the muscle building aspect and you care less about the skill practice of squatting benching and deadlifting because maybe you're not competing um then run something like conjugate or concurrent like it's going to be fun because it's new exciting movements every single week um and then it's like a heavy focus on like building the back building the triceps building um, the quads, or at least if you follow like a good concurrent conjugate program. Um, but if you're like looking for the skill set, then you're going to need to follow a program that is specific to squatting, benching, and deadlifting and make sure that it has like a good amount of accessories that are catered to you in like the areas that you need to build muscle. But like Trevor said, like consistency overall is going to be consistency and time put in overall is going to be like what actually gets you the muscle building. Like it's not going to happen because you do one block of something like just because you did one block of like heavy bent over rows doesn't mean that your back got bigger. Like it just means that you practice that skill, you know, like practice that skill for four weeks and you probably, you probably improved your bent over row over those four weeks, like strength wise, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you got stronger just because it improved strength wise. Like you have to keep doing that in order to build the muscle. Yeah. Matt. Matt's in there comment that our, our plus 14 corn nuggets is not a uh, new muscle. <laughs> uh, us 220 boys now. Undersized 198 is becoming undersized 220. <laughs> but it's, it's nice to be corn fed. I don't mind it. It's kind of enjoyable. The food in Iowa is great. All right, what do we got next? Um, when should you consider cutting for a meat? Never. No. <laughs> Says the guy who's cutting insane amounts. Um, this is a, a, a pet peeve of mine. Just because I cut doesn't mean you cut. Just because Riley cuts doesn't mean you cut. 
And I have this rule that if you're not good enough to be top 50 in your walk around weight class, you shouldn't be cutting. And when I say top 50, I don't mean in your freaking meat. I mean in the world. If you aren't strong enough to a point where it matters, you shouldn't ruin your day or add stress to your cycle and, and add stress to your peak. You should eliminate that stress by just walk in however strong you are, spend the first few years getting stronger. And when you've gotten to a point where you reach the top 50 in the world at your walk around weight, then start looking at what it would take to cut down the next weight class below and see if you can maintain or get higher up that list. If you're not there and you're not trying to set a significant record, and don't get me wrong, your state junior federation record in some subcategory for bench press that probably was open anyways and nobody held isn't a significant reason enough to cut because you and 15 other people own that same record for the 15 federations that are in your state. You're probably not the strongest in your state at bench press as a junior or a submaster or a master over 50. It's nice that you use those to track it, but you should be strong enough or aiming to be strong enough in there in your walk around weight. If you're not at a point where you're setting some type of all time top 50 goal, and it, you can do that. Open power thing allows you to do that. If you're top 50 in the world for like over 50s and you wanna drop down, cool, I don't have a problem with that. But if, if you're dropping for some really arbitrary reason just because you think you're gonna be more competitive in that meet, it's not a good enough reason to me. It's the wrong reason, it's counterproductive. You should be looking to grow and get stronger overall not get lighter and smaller just to be more competitive because that's the reverse of the sport. Their sport is adding muscle, getting stronger over time. It's not getting smaller and more refined over time. Although sometimes that's the case. If you start off too heavy and you work yourself down and you have a better nutrition structure. Riley's an example of that. You know, she went from eating junk food and being too heavy to having structured nutrition, healthier habits, better things. And her walk around weights now is in the low 150s compared to before where her walk around weight was in the, the low 180s. So it's just it's very different. That was a health, health uh, lifestyle change and so forth. Not to be more competitive, it took her two years to see the same number she saw that weight class coming down. People forget that. When you start dropping weight and live in a caloric deficit, it's harder to recover. It's not easy for you to get strong when you're doing that. It makes it much more meticulous. And if you don't have good habits to begin with, you're literally shooting yourself in the foot from your strength gains by doing so. So it's a huge pet peeve of mine when someone's like, oh, I'm going to cut because I can do this. It's like, that's not a good enough reason for me, man or woman, you're, you're literally blowing your opportunity, you've had a great prep, and you're not experienced with cutting, and you're not great with recomping, it's not gonna go well, and then you're gonna be upset, like, I didn't perform as well as I could. You're that person who's like, well, it didn't have the meat I expected. No, because you didn't do what you were supposed to, you did something different. You added a different level of expectations two weeks out. It's a bad problem to have. And it's, it's just everyone thinks they have to. You don't have to until you're strong enough, and then it becomes worthwhile to do so. Also, with cut, okay, so like, with cutting, majority of people, think that the important aspect is the cutting the weight part. We talked about this before. The important aspect is how you recomp after. Um, like you, it's relatively easy for the most part to cut weight, depending on like the modality that you use, but actually putting that weight back on in a good way in order for it to fuel you for proper performance is the hard part. Like most people aren't going to want to myself. I, I'm terrible about drinking liquids and that's the hardest part of a recomp for me is that like, you know, you have to down a whole bunch of like, electrolytes, Pedialyte, whatever it is. And I'm so bad at that. And that's the worst part of recomp for me. So I know that like this next cut that I do, I have to hyper-focus on that recomp and I'm, I'm going to have someone there to babysit me and make sure that I uh, do what I'm supposed to do. Um, but that's like the harder part is like, everyone's like, oh, it's e easy. I only have four pounds to cut. Cool. But if you're a lighter weight female, like four pounds is a good significant amount of your weight. Um, and if you don't put that back on, if you don't put that back on, like what was the point kind of, you know? Um, and like Trevor mentioned, I'm, I'm for these next two comps, like I am cutting weight, but I also sit 
um, not that high above my weight class. And my goal is to hit top 20 all time in my weight class. So it's not that I'm just doing this because I'm ranked 1000 in my weight class. Like I have a significant goal that I want to achieve. So I'm going to cut weight to make that happen. And I already know how my weight fluctuates. I know I've done it before. Um, we basically did a trial and error with showdown that didn't end very well on my, for my end, I went five for nine, but once again, what was that? It's an example that they don't always end well. You know, there's a process to the cut of knowing how to manipulate the water and being able to recomp and put it back on. It's a harder process than people realize to put it back on because some people get sick to their stomach and some people don't do it enough or some people get frustrated because they may have cut from like 208 and they only go back to 206. Like, why did I get all my weight back? I got news for you. When I cut 10 pounds, I gain 15 back. Like recomp is my job. I make it my job. I will eat no matter how painful I am, how comfortable I am and hydrate up. Uh, we were just joking out, like I gained 14 pounds literally in four days just eating unrestricted. Like I know how to recomp, it's, it's what I do well. And if you're gonna play the cut game, you better be masterful at the recomp. Yeah, and that, that was where I felt sure with the first time that we water cut for me was like I didn't recomp well. Um, the cut went great, the cut, I was 145. The cut went fine. Uh, it was just the recomp part that I messed up. So now I know after failing and learning, and now I know like what I need to focus on for this next cut, but I'm not just cutting just because like it's a backyard meet and I like may win best lifter or something. Like my goal is significant. So I'm going to cut weight um, for that. So that way I can do that. But I know what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, I've had lifters ask me for like water cut protocols for like two pounds, like, you know, or they're like, oh, I want to cut, I want to cut 30 pounds in two months. And it's like that just what's the point? You know, I think you have to like ask yourself, like assess the goal that you have and figure out if that's worth it, you know, like, and figure out if that's something that you're going to actually feasibly be able to do once you do decide to do the cut. Um, but it's so, it sucks that it is like a weight class specific sport because that's what makes everyone feel like they have to do the cuts in order to compete because everyone, everyone wants to be competitive. We don't compete if we don't, if we're not competitive, you know, like everyone does it for fun, but like, Day, we're all competing because we want to be competitive but if cutting weight to a lower weight class is making you less competitive than staying in the higher weight class what's the point just to say that you cut weight you know like if you are massively affecting your performance so much by cutting down to that lower weight class who cares stay at don't cut weight stay at the heavier weight class or whatever and put up better numbers you'll be more competitive that way and you won't be so depleted or you'll feel better or whatever it is you know like it's not it doesn't have to be as serious as what everyone makes it. Yeah, and I always remind people, you're going to be so much happier walking away from me going eight for nine than you ever will going four for nine. Yeah, trust me. I have only gone, I've gone nine for nine one time. Um, I've gone five for nine like three times, and I did seven for nine like one time or something, you know, and like, I don't know. It's a, it's like nine for nine doesn't feel great because you're like, wow, did I even try? But then you hit, you hit a couple five for nine meets hit a couple five for nine meets and you're like, damn, I really messed myself up. You know, like seven, seven or eight for nine seems to be the sweet spot for most people where they feel satisfied because they're like, okay, well I did try and I did push myself and I did pretty good. You know, maybe miss like one, uh, one or two third attempts. But if you set yourself up for a good day, going seven or eight for nine is great. Uh, going five for nine does not feel good. Trust me. <laughs> Less something on the table usually. What's our next question? Uh, things to do the week leading up to a meet. Ah, okay. As little as possible. 
this is where so many people do so many stupid things. The week of the meet is a meat-specific deload. Usually you're just doing your really, really light singles of squat or bench and maybe even a really light single deadlift if you need to groove, groove that. You're staying mobile as far as just staying loose, but you don't want to crew any and all fatigue. And one of the biggest things that people do that's absolutely dumb is they get anxious and they're like, well, I tried strongman or I tried a CrossFit wad or I rode a thousand meters. Like, why would you introduce a brand new stimulus when you just spent all this time accruing fatigue and then peaking for this meet to eliminate fatigue and then deloading into the meet and be fresh? So what you should do the week of a meet is nothing. Literally, literally nothing. Be your laziest. Just do your program deload workouts. Walk around if you need to. Get some movement and just walk, stretch, roll, mobilize. But other than that, you should do absolutely nothing. There should be nothing new introduced to your life the week of a meet. Be a hermit. Be antisocial. Whatever you got to do. But don't add any significant stress or fatigue. It's not the time to go out drinking. It's not the time to have late nights. It's not the time to, hey, I'm going to take a jiu-jitsu class or whatever the hell you do. Don't do it. Uh, if just your last deal workout or deal two workouts, daily mobility or whatever your daily homework is, eat yourself into the meat so you're fresh and strong, and that's all you should do. If you're looking to add anything, you've got the wrong idea. More of like what not to do during meat week than it is what to do, because the what to do list is really, really short. Um, definitely what you should not be doing is like Trevor mentioned, like it's not the week to go on like a super strenuous hike or a, take a CrossFit class or hot yoga or whatever it is that people do. Like, I don't know, you can do yoga, but like hot yoga, I know is super strenuous. Um, but <laughs> so if, uh, if during meet week, like that's a good time to like go on a date, you know, like go enjoy a movie. Like if those are things that relax you, like go on a, go on a date with your spouse, partner, whatever, uh, watch a movie. You could get a massage. Like people get massages like the week of the meet. I wouldn't do it too close to the meet. Uh, that would be like an earlier in the week kind of thing. Uh, cause you can get sore from a specific massage and you have to flush out the soreness and whatever. But, um, yeah, it's time to do something that you enjoy. Like I enjoy organizing and cleaning things. So that's probably what I would do. Meet, that's probably what I do meet week with my like extra time is like I, organize and clean things or I watch a lot of movies because that's my like de-stress watching movies is like my de-stress time um, I have like my default comfort movies which uh, it's kind of funny that my comfort movie is scream but that's fine um, so I do stuff like that but it's like like Trevor mentioned like go on walks uh, walk your dogs uh, walk your cats I don't know if people do that but um, yeah have fun but like not the type of fun that is going to make you tired <laughs> <laughs> and we say this laughing because it's so often that somebody will do this um and you'll, you'll get that random like five day out message like hey i took a jiu-jitsu class and i rolled my ankle what do i do i'm like nothing now you stupid <laughs> you can't fix stupid <laughs> you could have waited after the meet i don't know what your problem was but literally it happens every meet someone will text you they did something stupid yeah i don't i don't get that um i've had clients before say that they're like well, uh, I, I was, got really bored this week because I did my last two workouts, so I did some strongman stuff. I feel really tired now. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Why would you do that to yourself? I'm like, okay, well, let's hope that it uh, dissipates your fatigue by meet day. But, like, I don't know. You should do way less um, meet week than any, any week. Like, that, that's the week that you, it's okay to be lazy. That's yeah. the week that 100% meet week, less is more. Let your body recover, be refreshed. Just move to stay loose, and that's literally it. You've already done all the strength building. It's just staying loose. That's it. All right, what do we got next? What keeps you going or motivated? Oof, deep. I have an overwhelming fear of regression and mediocrity. 
Uh, I grew up very shy, very introverted, and I did not like myself in that format. And I pursued excellence and strength, and I love progress. Um, so this has now become an overwhelming fear where I don't want to go backwards or regress. And that time will catch up to me strength-wise. But it doesn't mean I can't keep learning, can't keep contributing, can't keep helping, growing the sport, helping athletes, doing whatever. So now I just shift my mindset a little bit less on my own physical progress and a little bit more on everybody else's development and progress and growing things like, you know, growing the business, uh, cultivating new relationships, growing things, the community. Anyway, I can progress as a person learning new things, learning new skills, expanding my mindset, my horizons, trying new things, not me weak, but trying new things, <laughs> getting to enjoy life a little bit more. That's really what keeps me going. I never want to take a, and I don't want to say a step backwards because sometimes a, a regression is necessary to progress. I don't want to accept less of myself is how I should frame that. I think I'm capable of so much more and I see that I'm not doing enough or not doing as much as I can. And I want to always create and do more because that excites me. That's what keeps me going. I don't want to become a insignificant, mediocre version of myself. I don't want to say person because that's, that's different for everybody. I don't want to be less of myself and that's what keeps me going. I don't want to be insignificant or mediocre to myself. So that drives me, that keeps me motivated, that keeps me going. And I'm enthralled with the idea of some level of progress in every facet of my life. It, it really fuels me to be better, to be motivated, to help more people and contribute more. I don't think there's a, a, a coach out there who's put as much actual useful, helpful content out there. And I literally do it while I'm training, like in the gym, I take the time for my own awareness and put that stuff out there. It's been mimicked, it's been copied by so many people. People used to make fun of the fact that I was doing it in like no pants on, out of breath, in between squat workouts, and now they fucking copy it. So I've contributed more to this sport in the last four or five years than damn near every coach, and I'm proud of that. That's huge. It's now something that everybody else replicates and everybody else does it. When this thing really didn't exist, people were just putting up stupid things like three spots available, DM me for coaching, whatever. That's stupid. Just help more people. The more people you help, the more people are going to come to you. And that's going to grow your mindset. It's going to grow your business. It's going to grow more abundance for your life. And that's what you really want to do is, is I want to have a very abundant life in all aspects of it. Not just financial, but an abundant life as far as being happy, being healthy, uh, enjoying the sport, enjoying the, the people I meet and the, the community I have and making new friends. And new memories. So that's what that's what fuels me. That's what drives me. I think if I don't focus on that, I'm going to become that insignificant, mediocre version of myself, and I will hate myself for that. Um, I feel like mine is twofold between like my personal lifting and my coaching. Uh, for my personal lifting, I have been through a lot of shit in my life. Uh, I've gone through a lot of things. Uh, self-inflicted, non-self-inflicted, family-related things, friend-related things. Like I've gone. I've survived a lot, basically. And so, I mean, being an athlete, being an athlete my whole life has kind of helped keep me uh, in some sort of like strength sport or some sort of athletic thing. Um, so that's like, I guess a driving force is like, I always want to be athletic in some sort of capacity and like being strong is cool. But like, realistically, for me, I've been through so much in my entire life. And I've gone through so many things that like, being physically strong and being able to pick up a barbell seems like the least taxing thing that I, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's like when you've been through so much, you're kind of like, well, yeah, I can fucking pick up this weight. No big deal. Like I've been through way worse things. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Excited. So um, I've been through so many things in life that like picking up a barbell doesn't seem like it's, you know, it doesn't seem like anything that I can't do. And I'm very resilient and I've gone through many things that like 
other people probably wouldn't have made it through, I suppose. Um, and it just, like I said, it just seems like picking up a barbell. I don't want to say that it's insignificant because obviously I enjoy it and I love it. And this is what I do every single day. And I choose to do this, but it just doesn't feel so crazy in the grand scheme of things based off of what I've been through. So like, I always want to be resilient and like, it's kind of a good cathartic thing for me. Like we all say that the gym and like lifting is not therapy and it, I agree it doesn't replace therapy, but it is a good catharsis for a lot of people. It's a cathartic event for a lot of people to like be able to channel your aggression, your rage, your sadness, whatever it is to be able to channel those things and like lift weight that way. Um, like there is a, like I know Alexis, her uh, coaching business is like controlled chaos and that really is like what it should be. Um, generally lifting, you have to, you can be a calm lifter, but you have to be able to kind of channel some sort of something in order to lift really, really heavy weights, right? So I may not outwardly express what I, what is going on in my head, but there's a lot of things happening in my head that's making me aggressive and like being able to hit PRs and whatever. So, um, it kind of keeps me going, knowing like what I've been through, what I've made it through and like what I am resilient through to be able to keep doing this. Cause I'm like, Oh, you have a PR triple today. Like that's nothing compared to like what you've gone through. So just fucking pick it up, you know, just lift the weight. Um, as far as like the coaching aspect goes or like what keeps me going and motivated that way. Um, I'm kind of like a, I feel like it wouldn't be guessed, but I'm kind of like a natural caretaker caregiver whatnot um like that's i will always put myself last behind people like i am a little bit self-sacrificing in that way um so seeing people grow and prosper and like especially seeing people grow in like a confidence aspect with lifting that is what will always motivate me to continue improving myself as a coach um and continue improving or continue helping other people improve because like it's it, nothing is cooler, especially if you're someone who isn't confident or kind of like worked on improving their confidence over time. Nothing is cooler than seeing someone be like, essentially have this glow up and be so happy with themselves and feel strong and feel confident and like love what they're doing. And they're like, wow, I've made so many changes because I'm actually confident myself. You know, like I got a new job because I realized that I wasn't being um, respected there or I ended a relationship or started a relationship or I stood up for myself or whatever it is like that confidence seeps into everything else. So if I can help anyone like become confident, like lifting under lifting weights and getting stronger physically, because that, that, that helps them to seep that confidence in everything else. And that's like super rewarding for me. So that will always be something that keeps me motivated to like improve and get better at my craft and help and find new ways to help people. Um, through like communicating with them through writing a program, like writing a program is a very simple thing. If that's what can help people get more confident and get stronger than like, that's, that's enough for me. Awesome. Awesome. What's our next question? Um, when, why, and how to use inverted volume? That's a great question. Uh, so people who don't understand this, where really the concept comes from, it is a system that was popularized here in America by Dr. Fred Hatfield, Dr. Squat. He used inverted volume. Where he learned from was the Russian sports scientists were using with the Russian athletes of using submaximal weights, somewhere in the range of 70 to 85% of weights that they can move with precision as far as form was concerned and speed. And he built the volume that way as opposed to grinding sets. They never went towards failure as far as because form broke down or fatigue accrued versus the Bulgarians who were going towards failure every single workout. And the difference they found was 
injury rate was much lower, the mental burnout rate was much lower, and the time in the sport was significantly higher to a point of three and a half times. The average Bulgarian weightlifter would lift for about three and a half years. The average Russian, Russian weightlifter would be competitive for about 12 and a half to 13 years. It was really significant. When Fred Hatfield brought this information over and he talked about inverted volume, he introduced it to Louis Simmons, who then used the inverted volume structure for the dynamic effort days of doing low threshold weights with as much speed as possible with a short rest interval to work on work capacity. It was adapted in that aspect. I know you mentioned this in your story, but that was the real reason why inverted volume was created was to avoid fatigue from a set to set ratio. So an example of inverted volume would be five sets of three instead of three sets of five. So if you took five sets of three at 80% and three sets of five at 80%, you're going to work into different systems, but it's the same exact volume of work overall. The same tonnage was moved, but when you're doing three sets of five, you might get a little bit closer to fatigue and you're only having three sets with one first rep and in powerlifting, you only get one first rep. So the more skill practice you get at the first rep, the more power you're going to have. So the concept was that you can put more power into each one of those sets. It's in my guidelines, no lazy reps. Everything must be lifted at full force. Once you're in your working sets and you're done warming up, you lift with full force, full velocity, as much as you can. That's why they use velocity trackers to see what speed you're moving at. Inverted volume was designed to allow you to put full force into more sets and get more skill practice and force development work rather than grinding yourself down and having form breakdown and breaking apart. In turn, we know that we need both. There are periods where you need that, that level of fatigue and that strain so you can learn how to strain, hence the max effort method, versus the inverted volume where you're learning how to create force development and power. A good system should combine both aspects. At certain times, you, you need to grind if you're getting closer ready for the meet because you are going to be grinding in the meet. And if you're in your off-season, you need to build. The inverted volume structure works really well because you're going to manage fatigue better and be able to get more total power into each set, even if the volume is the same. So five sets of three, your first rep of each one of those is going to be lightning fast and moving the weight really well. You're turning 80% now into speed work versus three sets of five where your first set moves well, your first rep, sorry, moves well for the first three sets, but your fifth is really slow. By that third set, you're really slowing down. You can't put full power into it anymore. You've hit a point of fatigue. The idea is to allow you to train more power development and manage fatigue within the workout, not just the whole cycle. I also like to think of it in the, like what I said in my story, I actually, I have a Jake right now who just like absolutely annihilates volume, like a three by 10 for him. He can like get up to like close to 80% for a three by 10, but it's like above 80% is when things will start to like fall apart. Not that he's like a technically non-proficient or anything like that, but it's just like, you can see that vol he's a volume boy. Like that is hundred percent what he's really, really good at. Um, so for someone like him, like I would want to work on more inverted volume because he's already so good at the volume. Like that's not an issue. Like I will keep volume in for like some movements because you have to keep that level of conditioning. And like, that's where generally in the hypertrophy ranges you will build. So I will keep those in, but for him, like I would want to focus more on inverted volume because above like about like 85% is when it's just like everything moves kind of the same and he hits these like massive, or it's like 82.5%. He hits these like massive um, technique flaws basically. And so for him, instead of being like, okay, well, we're going to work on volume to build muscle. I need him to work on skill set more. So I'm going to invert his volumes. So maybe instead of a three by 10, he will get a 10 by three. Um, so that way, like Trevor's mentioning, he has more opportunities to work on the reps as if they are singles every single time. So with 10 sets of three, he has 10 opportunities to hit three cluster singles, basically. And that's what I would want him to do is focus on these triples as if they were 
first reps, first reps, first reps every single time and like really nail the positioning because that's what people, a lot of people get in their heads above like a certain percentage to where they start forgetting like what their cues are. I just had this conversation with the lifter uh, this morning where it gets to a certain weight and she just like forgets everything that she's supposed to be doing. So if I can give her more practice um, at higher percentages and like by more practice, I mean more sets and like more skill practice and stuff, then I'm going to do that because she's going to be less scared of the weight. She's going to be less scared of above a certain percentage and she's going to actually be able to implement those cues and remember what she's supposed to be doing um, rather than being like, ah, it's this weight on the bar and I'm so scared and I don't know what to do. I'm just gonna forget everything that I do and then that's when we see failures. Um, so in those cases where people are really, really good at volume, I see them like consistently hitting these numbers, no problem. They're like, oh, this is really easy. Give me more weight. I'm going to invert your volume and you're going to hate it because that's not what you're good at. Um, so I think that there's multiple ways that you can use inverted volume. Like Trevor's talking about, um, you know, working on speed and acceleration and then also working on technique proficiency and skill. Um, if you're someone who's already good at the volume sets. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it just, it's a little bit more tedious for some people when they're like, oh man, I gotta do six sets of three. Like it's a lot of work, but it's the same work. It's just, you're getting more skill set. You're getting more skill practice. And it's kind of the idea behind things like daily and daily improvisation is getting more specific skills practice, but using the inverted volume structure allows you to put full force, full power behind and get to the workout due source. And that's really what's important. The first, the first two movements you do are, are your biggest neurological drivers because after that fatigue sets in, that's what we shift the muscle builders after that because at that point, the neurological system is not looking to create a lot of force, a lot of power, but you can handle time under tension and so forth. So it's, it's great to incorporate both at different times. Um, it's also really, really good when you're coming back from an injury and you want to use some load but not fatigue out or burn out so you can use inverted volume structures. Charles Poliquin talked about that a lot. Uh, he's a little bit more uh, strength-based for athletes. Like he worked with like 16 different gold medal athletes in different sports that they have heard of. And he used a lot of inverted volume structures of like 20 sets of two with really short rest intervals so people can use significant load but not see fatigue to actually put a muscle under tension without getting it to a point where it broke down, which is really, really neat. So it's using rehab structures, it's using power structures, it's using athletic structures. It's just a great way to program things for specific skill development with the main lift. Yeah, I like volume. I would, I would, I'd probably rather do like eight singles rather than like- All day. One. Yeah, like- I'll take the singles. If you if you program me like eight doubles and set, or two sets of eight, I'm gonna choose the eight doubles. We've we've seen it respond. Uh, that's how my deadlift responds best. Uh, right now I'm just doing some general volumes and more hypertrophy work. But I don't get shit out of rep deadlifts on sumo. I can rep them all day long. It doesn't do anything to build my max. I projected like 870 with rep maxes on sumo, and that's just not the case. My best lift is 815. But if I do inverted volume singles where I'm making precise, 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 my deadlift goes back up. So that's how I come into meets as I start doing. Singles, doubles, and triples with the Dallas for high, high inverted volumes, six sets, seven sets, eight sets of like double singles and triples, and that's where it comes from. Uh, my squats the same way. My bench is a mystery still, but <laughs> squats and deadlifts because I'm a power guy. I work really well with inverted volumes. It looks like that's about all the time we got here. So thank you guys who've joined us. Thank you all who sent questions. Thank you everyone who shares this podcast, which released every single Monday. We appreciate you guys. Uh, also, members, to you can check out the Cultivating Strength platform. It's in Riley's bio. It's in my bio. It's on Train Heroic. Your first week is free. You just want to try it and see how the programming structure looks for Train Heroic. And it is without coaching, but you will get solid programming. And also all of you who support and follow and share the videos from Culture Nutra and support the brand, we appreciate you. Riley, I will see you next week. Sophie, I will see you probably next week as well. <laughs> she's not communicative, but she's cute. So I hope you guys have a good week and thank you for joining us and we'll see you later. Bye.